Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the blunt ruling from a three-judge panel on the Court of Appeals denying Trump absolute immunity, which he is bound to appeal as he seeks to delay the insurrection trial. Joining us to discuss that and Thursday's Supreme Court hearing on Colorado's attempt to disqualify Trump from the ballot and whether that would trigger serial overlapping waves of resistance is Aziz Huck, a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He is a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. He is a contributor to an article at Politico, which we will discuss, Supreme Court Shocker. Here's what happens if Trump gets kicked off the ballot. Then we'll look further into the season of violence ahead, starting with today's request by Nikki Haley for Secret Service protection from Trump's supporters fired up with vengeance because of his denunciations of her. Joining us to discuss how violence is moving from the back burner to the front burner as the 2024 election gets underway is Wendy Veer, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center and helped launch Justice for Migrant Women. Then finally, we'll assess the upcoming shakeup at the top of Ukraine as President Zelensky is considering replacing, quote, multiple state leaders. Joining us is Natalie Melnichuk, a consultant on Euro-Atlantic security and a professor of political science at Wayne State University, who is writing a dissertation on hybrid warfare and Euro-Atlantic security. She served as NATO representative to Ukraine and as the head of the NATO Information and Documentation Center in Kiev and as a political officer in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division of the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Section at NATO headquarters in Brussels and as manager of USAID's Parliamentary Development Project at the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation and in various other academic and policy positions. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. And he's a contributor to an article at Politico, Supreme Court Shocker. Here's what happens if Trump gets kicked off the ballot. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aziz Huck. Thanks for having me. So, Aziz, let's begin with the news today, which is that the Federal Appeals Court in Washington rejected Trump's claim of absolute immunity. But this is not a loss for Trump because his tactic is to drag things out, hopefully till after the election. And we know that Trump will appeal to the Supreme Court. But in the interim, will he appeal for an on-back ruling of the entire appeals court? Uh Trump's strategy in the criminal cases has been to seek as much delay as possible in order to push back any trial after November of this year. Uh, It seems likely that he'll do whatever is uh, most uh, uh, likely to uh, have that effect. Uh, And here, I think it's likely to be uh, 
a request for in bonk appeal or uh, if that fails, a request to the Supreme Court. Um, and then the question is going to be whether uh, he is able to get a stay from either uh, the lower court or from the Court of Appeals of uh, the beginning of trial proceedings while whatever uh, actions that he or appeals he files are uh, unfolding. So is it possible though, that the Supreme Court could refuse to take it or is that unlikely? It's very hard to tell. Uh, this is a question that has not been teed up before in exactly this way. Um, the criminal exposure of people who are in the presidency for acts committed while they were president. Um, the relevant legal authorities, to my mind, are very clear. And uh, I, I think a fair-minded application of the law should not uh, means that the under a fair-minded application of the law, the, the circuit court ruling from today is not surprising. It's, it's quite uh, predictable. Uh, if the court uh, is guided by its sense of whether the uh, lower circuit court has gone off the rails here, I, I, as it sometimes is guided by, uh, then it seems unlikely that it would grant cert in this case. But if it looks at this case and it thinks this is a case of national importance, uh, much in the way that the Colorado case must have seemed a case of national importance, then I think it's likely to grant the case. And, and I just don't think we know what the, how the court's going to frame uh, the decision about whether to, to hear uh, an appeal from this ruling today. But normally, I would think that higher courts, if lower courts say this is ridiculous and they throw it out. Doesn't that carry some weight? I, I think that's right, especially where the weight of legal authorities uh, overwhelmingly under uh, underpins the Court of Appeals uh, judgment from today. So yes, I think in the normal course of things, this would not be a, a, a matter that one would expect to see appealed. But of course, with, with Trump, nothing is a normal state of affairs. So let's turn to Thursday's ruling where uh, the Supreme Court will be hearing first from Trump's lawyers. Who The lawyer, by the way, is, this, is the same lawyer that's behind the Texas anti-abortion uh, vigilante ruling uh, that turns ordinary citizens into vigilantes to report on anybody who might be having an abortion or assisting somebody having an abortion. Then, of course, the Colorado Secretary of State, I think, is also going to be given some time but um, in terms of the or article at the Politico Supreme Court shocker, here's what happens if Trump gets kicked off the ballot. It seems to me, from what you and, and Rachel Kleinfeld have written, Aziz, we're going to have violence in this election. We're going to have violence because Trump is Trump and he incites people. And he'll be, of course, he looks like he'll be the, the candidate for sure. We'll have violence if the courts disqualify him or jail him. We'll have violence if he loses in November. He'll do what he did again in 2020, say the vote was rigged and it was stolen. And we'll have, we'll have violence if he wins and does what he intends to do with martial law, creating gulags. There'll be demonstrations against that, and those demonstrations will be put down violently. So are we inevitably heading into an era or a season of violence? I, I think that's right. I, I think that... Um the observation that were the court to uphold the Colorado decision and also extend it to the general election, because it's important to observe that the Colorado ruling is actually only about the primary ballot. Um, I, I think that the, the, the belief among some people is that such a ruling would be justified and also would be the end of the matter. And um, I, I think that as a matter of law, that ruling upholding the Colorado decision would be would rest upon very strong justifications. I think that the factual and legal case against Trump is exceedingly powerful. At the same time, I think that um, it is important for people who hold the view that I do that um, Trump is, um, has, has committed acts that ought to disqualify him from office 
it's important that those people understand that merely having a ruling from the Supreme Court will not settle the matter and that there are pathways of both legal and extra legal resistance to that ruling that will likely be available and that likely will be taken up. So I don't know, and I think it's impossible to know, whether there will be more violence in the absence or in the presence of that ruling. But I think it's an important point to observe that it, were Trump to have his disqualification upheld by the court, we would be at the beginning, not the end of a very fraught process in which we would see multiple lines of resistance being taken up. But how are these originalists going to get around on the Supreme Court, get around the fact that it's pretty clear? In fact, I interviewed one of the recently one of the historians who wrote an amicus brief along with other historians, particularly those historians specialize in the Civil War and Reconstruction, on the question of whether or not the presidency is an office as mentioned in Section 3, during the congressional debates of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, Senator Reverdy Johnson of Maryland, a Democratic opponent of the 14th Amendment, challenged sponsors as to why Section 3 omitted the president. Republican Senator Lott Morrill of Maine, an influential backer of Congressional Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment, corrected the senator. Morrill replied, let me call the senator's attention to the words, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. Senator Johnson admitted his error. No other senator questioned whether Section 3 covered the president. That seems like pretty solid evidence for an originalist. I think if the court... Uh, rules in Trump's favor, it is not likely to be on that point. I think it is more likely to be um, on the premise that a federal statute is under our present circumstances required for a disqualification. I, I think that the pathway for uh, a justice who does not want to um, deal with the uh, uh, difficulties of the officer question or deal with the difficulties of what counts as an insurrectional rebellion or whether Trump's role on January the 6th falls within that definition uh, is to say something of the following. It's, it's to say that uh, the text of the 14th Amendment is not clear uh, as to how it will be implemented. And there is a federal statute um, on the books now, the statute that defines the criminal offense of insurrection. And it identifies disqualification as one of the consequences of the conviction. Um, and, and the court can reason from that federal statute to the conclusion that there isn't another pathway that runs through the state. Um, there are arguments against that, the argument that I just made. Most importantly, when the 14th Amendment was first uh, ratified, it was broadly uh, accepted that its application was automatic, that it required no federal uh, statute in order to be efficacious. Uh, and to the contrary, what, what, what statutory action did generally was to eliminate uh, disqualification uh, that attached to former officials um, who had uh, aided or abetted the Confederacy. Um, I can imagine ways around that argument, but to my mind, it's a much cleaner argument, a much less politically contentious argument than getting into the weeds of who counts as an officer or especially getting into the details of what counts as a rebellion or an insurrection. But in your Politico article, Aziz, you say, it's not clear to me that legislators and officials in Republican states would honor the decision to take Trump off the ballot in preparing general election ballots in November as the ongoing tussle between the federal government and Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the border illustrates. So one of the things I, I find extraordinary is, and I spoke the other day with Lawrence Lessig, who's arguing that the Supreme Court's 2020 decision on electors uh, and how they should vote and how, how they should be sort of confined in their voting 
has opened the door for state legislatures to basically decide who the electors are in the Electoral College, which is extraordinary. So I, I find it hard to believe that as recently as 2020, the Supreme Court could have allowed such a loophole. Well, the the faceless Alexis case, uh, which Lassick is referring to, was a case in which what was at stake was a elector, I believe for the state of Washington, who decided to uh, vote what might be called their conscience rather than voting for the candidate that, that the people of the state of Washington had selected. And the question was whether uh, the state could punish him uh, for that, whether the state could bind electors to vote for the person who the state had, in fact, uh, selected. So in that context, it makes a lot of sense to say the state can give instructions to its electors, and those instructions are legally binding. The problem arises under conditions in which the state legislature gives instructions that are at odds with the uh, vote cast by the people of the state. And the decision doesn't actually address that. And, and I think Lessig is right that it is very possible to read that decision as encompassing a situation in which the legislature for state says, the people voted for X, but we tell you, presidential electors, vote for Y. Th that possibility isn't addressed in the faithless electors case. But given that that's a possibility, it is an important uh, potential pathway of resistance that you might see play out in states like North Carolina, for example, maybe Arizona, uh, uh, were uh, Trump to be disqualified and the disqualification to be upheld by the Supreme Court. But I bring that up in the context of what you've written about Governor Abbott defying the federal government over the border. So it's out there in the zeitgeist, isn't it, this kind of rebellion? In fact, by the way, it's now being called Texit amongst right-wingers in Europe. And by the way, the Russian state media propaganda is pumping the idea of secession of Texas. So is the Chinese state media. And right-wingers in, in Europe are all behind what they call Texit. So these all, but these all, I think, support the, or, or they're all consistent with the point in the article. Let me, let me, let me step back and just say what the article uh, uh, says. So the article is premised on the Politico editor's request that forget about the possibilities that the Supreme Court reverses Colorado and assume that Colorado uh, wins and that Trump is thereby disqualified. I, I think that that assumption is is quite unlikely because I think the court will say that a, a federal statute is needed for the reasons that I just said. But what I play out in the article is what would happen in the unlikely scenario in which Trump is in fact disqualified by the Supreme Court. And in that unlikely scenario, which has nothing to do with at which point the court has, has said, we don't need a federal statute. You, Colorado, you, Maine, can disqualify. In that unlikely scenario, then I think both uh, uh, the possibility of Republican uh, uh, officials in state saying, well, we think the Supreme Court's judgment is legitimate. We are going to put Trump on the ballot anyway. The possibility of Republican legislatures come November saying, well, we don't care what the people said. We're going to direct our electors to vote for Trump because we think he got a raw deal from the Supreme Court. I think those things become real possibilities in that world. But I think that it is, it is quite unlikely that the court will reach a ruling that upholds Colorado. And so I don't think that we're going we're to be in the world in which those forms of resistance are a consequence of the court's decision. Absolutely, we're seeing lots of that kind of resistance happening in the world as it is. Um, but all of which is a way of, under, of, of supporting or underscoring the fact that 
just because the Supreme Court has said something does not mean the debate or the uh, the conflict over this question of qualifications is over. And I think that's the that's really the key point. Even if the court says we think Trump is disqualified, that is not the end of the matter. So. At the end of the day, do you think these loose ends in the law can be closed before there is an explosion of violence? Well, I, I would go back to where you started, which is I think I think that the the political uh, environment is such that violence is much more likely now than it was certainly 10 years ago, probably four or five years ago. I think that there's open questions about like at what form and in what opportunities or what opportunities for that violence, um, what, what opportunities and what form that violence takes. I, I think it's very different, uh, the kind of violence that you, I think, accurately uh, forecast under a Trump presidency as opposed to the kind of um, less organized private violence that we saw um, that we've seen in the past, including on January 6th. Um, absolutely, there's lots of different ways in which violence might occur. Almost certainly, some of those those forms of violence will arise. But I, I, I think that we just don't know enough about what's going to happen even in the short term to know, well, this is the likely pathway um, and this is, these are the forms of violence we can expect, and these are the forms of violence that are less likely. Well, just in closing, Aziz, of course, we learned today that uh, Nikki Haley has asked for Secret Service protection because of threats to her from Trump's supporters who uh, are reacting to Trump's attacks on her. So it is a ugly situation. It's likely to get uglier, and I thank you for joining us. I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank and you. Again, Thank you, Aziz. And again, I've been speaking with Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Challenge of Constitutional Remedies. And he's a contributor to an article at Politico, Supreme Court Shocker. Here's what happens if Trump gets kicked off the ballot. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking further into the seasons of violence ahead as violence is moving from the back burner to the front burner as the 2024 elections get underway. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Wendy Veer, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and helped launch Justice for Migrant Women. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wendy Via. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks like as we enter this election year of 2024, that violence is moving from the back burner to the front burner. Nikki Haley just today asked for Secret Service protection because of threats from Trump supporters based upon Trump's denunciations of her. And it would seem to me uh, that because Trump is running, there's violence because he eschews violence and revels in it and issues all kinds of threats and denunciations. And then violence will come, of course, if the courts disqualify him or jail him. Violence uh, will come if he loses in November. And violence will happen if he wins, because if he does what he intends to do, like institute martial law, create concentration camps, there will be demonstrations against that, and they will be cracked down on. So is this a fair description of what we're heading for? Well, I believe that 
the situation in the United States right now is extremely volatile. And it's just a matter of when the match is struck that it tips over into real violence. I'm not sure how we're going to avoid it when we have so many political leaders who just brazenly, um, they don't, I mean, they do everything but call for violence, right? Um, and, but they, when you talk about immigrants as invaders and you talk about the LGBTQ community as destroying our society and um, affirmative action, meaning that people of color uh, should not have the same rights, it's just, I don't know how we're going to avoid some sort of violent tragedy. Well, there is this movement called Texit which is happening because of Governor Abbott is, is defying the federal government over the border and not allowing the Border Patrol to tear down razor wire that him and his Texas National Guard have put up. So you already have the kind of rumors of secession. But this has been picked up by foreign governments, by the propaganda ministry in, in Russia and in China that are both pushing the idea of Texas starting a secession movement uh, known as Texit. And far-right groups in Europe are getting behind it too. So that seems to be the new rallying cry. Well, I think it is. I think that the the far-right extremist movement that is now so strong in the United States and is gaining strength in country after country in Europe and, and really in the global south too, um, is they're, they look to the United States to see what's happening. And so the idea is that Abbott, Texas, are, is, are challenging the status quo. They're not going to um, bow down, in this case, to the federal government, but really what they mean is like to the, they're thinking the globalist, right? And so you see um, the, the strong uh, far-right parties in Italy and France and Portugal admiring what Abbott is doing because that is what they want to see across the world. And to, for them to pick up on Texit, which is, of course, about succeeding, Texit seceding from the United States, which is completely illegal and it, and it can't happen, um, it's, just a, it's just a way of showing brazen defiance. But surely the American people, and maybe the Democrats should emphasize this, that malign foreign powers like Russia and China are encouraging the breakup of America in alliance with far-right groups who have a lot of traction in the Republican Party that's been taken over by the far-right, led by Donald Trump. So it's pretty clear what's going on, that Trump is and his followers are essentially unpatriotic. And what they're doing now in killing the Senate uh, immigration Ukraine-Israel bill is that there's no such thing as a national interest when it comes to them. It ought to be clear from day one that Trump talks a good game about America first, but it's always Donald Trump first. Everything about it is Donald Trump first. Well, yes, I completely agree. I think that Donald Trump is is absolutely not patriotic, and I think his actions are are un-American as we understand what that means, right? And I mean, I guess it means different things to different people, but in my view, he is. It is always about him, and he will use and say anybody or anything to get what he wants. And if he, feel, if he feels that it is more expedient for the border to remain in crisis, then that's what he's going to do. And what's shameful is the number of elected officials that we have that refuse to stand up to him um, and perpetuate this backsliding of democracy. So do you think then that, that there's any way that both warning the American people about how foreign governments are, are having investment in the disintegration and breakup of America, which is being encouraged by the far right and by Trump, is, has some traction? And do you think that, I mean, who's going to warn us about the dangers of violence ahead? And if the violence happens, 
do we know whether or not the military will be able to stand by the Constitution? Will the police stand by the Constitution? Or will they side against the people, as Trump tells them that anybody that disagrees with him and demonstrates against his policies, if he creates concentration camps and and as martial law, etc., are, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, well, I think that if it, I mean the how this manifests, if if it's if it ends up to be a lone um, or a single actor act of violence, you know, like a mass shooting, or it could be um, a series of so-called smaller acts of violence. Or it could be something that is more organized. And the convoy in Texas didn't turn out to be that organized, thank goodness. And so um, it, it has been relatively calm. But it depends on who is in office. If if Trump is not in office, like uh, uh, sworn in as president, and there is um, un- civil unrest, I think that the Constitution will hold and that the military will do what it's what it is um, sworn to do. I don't know what will happen after he's sworn in if he indeed wins. This is why we warn about just assuming that our institutions will hold. They managed to hold through the first term, through Trump's first term. They were s- severely damaged, but they have a plan now. And I'm sure you've seen Project 2025 and others that are that are going to take care of those problems in the second term so that he w- nobody will be caught flat-footed and they'll be implementing the um, strongest possible leadership, which I would describe as authoritarianism from day one. But as far as the violence goes, I mean, I don't think there's any way to predict what and when and how large, but given you know, I've been working in extremism for 20 years. I know, um, given what is happening, not um, in the United States, um, uh, in different regions of the United States, and how folks are working, you know, with other far-right extremists, I don't see how we avoid violence in the coming months. I just hope that it is not something that shakes our democracy, like in the way you're describing, although... We cannot rule it out. Well, Wendy, there have been so many political assassinations in this country. I mean, going back to the 19th century with McKinley and and uh, then in the 20th century with Jack Kennedy, uh, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, attempts on Reagan's life, attempts on Gerald Ford's life by would-be assassins. But now it's a different environment because Donald Trump is is encouraging violence and riling up his supporters and denouncing anybody that criticizes him. And the latest of which is Nikki Haley, who's now having to get some, asking for uh, Secret Service protection. So this is a different environment. I mean, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that we've had enough political assassinations in the regular environment where people were nominally civil in this country, but now civility's out the window because of Trump. Well, I think that's right. And I I don't know about assassinations, but I do believe that Trump's rhetoric and the rhetoric of everybody in his circle, um, folks like Abbott, uh, you know, uh, others, Mike Johnson, any, when you rile people up, if you inflame them with false uh, information, with uh, harmful rhetoric, eventually Somebody is going to take action, and that's what we do. And 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 I didn't realize that Nikki Haley was already getting Secret Service protection, but I'm not at all surprised. What, well, I, I'm I not sure about that. Did. I'm not. I think she asked for it today. I don't know whether she's got it yet. Oh, okay. Well, I'll I'll I'm have not to check surprised. That. Yeah, that the situation is such that she would feel she needed to ask for it, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's just not surprising. And. I don't, if we cannot, I mean, I, I call on all political leaders to be, you know, you can be passionate about whatever argument you're making, but you can also be civil and you don't dehumanize and demonize other people 
and which leads to people taking violent action. And I'm not just, I'm talking about Republicans talking to Republicans, Democrats talking to each other, you know, every, the, the people in power need to be the ones to call it out when they see it. Otherwise, we are most definitely going to see uh, some sort of tragic violence. Well, people who've worked with Trump inside the Oval Office when he was president have told me they've witnessed him telling the Homeland Security Secretary and General Kelly, who was his chief of staff, that he wanted the Marines on the southern border to shoot Mexican pregnant Mexican women in the legs. He went on waxing lyrical about how to put razor blades and razor wire at the top of the wall so that the Mexicans would cut their hands and bleed uh, as they tried to climb over the wall. I was told by people who who's spent time with him in the Oval Office that the man is, Trump, is sadistic. He's a, he's a violent, hateful man who is a coward who relishes in violence to be meted out against his enemies. When he was running in 2016, he told the crowds at his rallies to go after members of the press and anybody was in there that was uh, was heckling him. He told the police in Suffolk County when they arrest somebody not to put their hand on their head and push them into the back of the of the squad car, but to bang their head against the door. And you know, I mean, this is who he is. He's a violent hateful coward who loves violence so this is we've never had anybody like this before and i for the life of me i don't understand why there isn't some sanction on him and why people don't recognize what a danger he is to not just to american democracy but to the civil cohesion of this country i don't know why they don't either uh ian i think that you know, for the large, the you know, say he's got about 50% support right now. Um, most of those folks don't believe the allegations against him. They don't believe that he that what he says incites any kind of uh, violence. They, they think he's just talking and that it's people who, are, you know, who are not stable, who take him up on it. They just don't believe it. Or if they believe some of it, they're willing to set it aside for whatever policies that he he is promising them that they believe is going are going to help him. I I don't know I don't know what we do with that um, right now except for to continue to expose him for what he is to expose his actions, and you know and and of course. Um, the the other in addition to his his rhetoric causing so much harm i think one of the um most important things that it does is it empowers people that are uh, who wouldn't ordinarily say things like that like a greg abbott maybe he's always been conservative or or right wing but did he used to say that you know, did he used to say things like invasion? I, I don't know. I'm just using that as an example mm -hmm. for all these political figures who have crossed this line, this cordon sanitaire. There is no line. You know, it's not, it's not there anymore. It's been eradicated. And so people feel much freer to say and do things that they did not years ago. Well, Wendy Beer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's good to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Wendy Veer, who's the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center and launched and helped launch Justice for Migrant Women. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the upcoming shakeup at the top in Ukraine as President Zelensky is considering replacing, quote, multiple state leaders. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. Laughed and kissed his mom and said, you're Billy Joe's a man. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Natalie Melnichuk, who is a consultant on Euro-Atlantic security and a lecturer at Wayne State University, where she is writing a dissertation on hybrid warfare and Euro-Atlantic security. She served as NATO representative to Ukraine as the head of the NATO Information and Documentation Center in Kiev, as political officer in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division at the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Section at NATO headquarters in Brussels, as manager of USAID's Parliamentary Development Project at the US-Ukraine Foundation, and in various other academic and policy positions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Natalie Melnichuk. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Natalie. And uh, a couple of days ago on February the 4th, in an interview with Italy's Ryan News, President Zelensky said that he needs to replace, quote, a series of state leaders across the government, not just in a single sector. He was asked specifically about whether he intended to replace the head of the military, General Zaluzny, and then he went on to say, no, we need to change multiple state leaders. And he emphasized that what was needed is not just replacing a single person, but a lot of people, uh, because Ukrainian leadership cannot be discouraged and must maintain the right positive energy in order to win the war. So how does that translate to you, Natalie? Well, that's right, Ian. I think it's nothing too unexpected to hear this sort of rhetoric, uh, whether it's behind the scenes or in this case where President Zelensky has actually made a very overt public statement on the matter. Uh, Times of warfare call for ever-changing needs and ever-changing responsibilities and capabilities that can handle the new and emerging needs. So um, not too unexpected, really, but we haven't seen much from that. I mean, the the kind of rumors in the hallways of the last few weeks that the head of a military command chief solutionate that he would be replaced, that has not yet come to fruition. And that was the first that we heard that there might be some sort of radical or significant shift within the government. Um, but what we have seen is that today the um, Veterans Affairs Minister, Yulia Laputina, she submitted her resignation to Ukraine's parliament, the Verkhovna Rada. And that is very significant in a country where last summer already there were a significant amount of veterans finishing their first tours, um, no longer fighting and requiring support and respect. Ukraine was not really prepared for that, ministerially speaking. Um, There has been a great deal of work done to meet the needs of the veterans. However, it is an area that requires substantially more input, more financial input, more vision, and it has to grow rapidly to meet uh, the needs of Ukraine's veterans. So not surprisingly, uh, Minister Laputina submitted her resignation. Tomorrow, the parliament will bring it to a vote the assumption being it will be accepted and her resignation will be the first in what might be um, a larger scale reset of Ukraine's top leadership. Well, that sounds incredibly critical. If you've got a war going on where Russia has a manpower advantage of about four to one, and if these veterans are coming out of this grueling long battles where they're exhausted, they need a lot of help. They need a lot of financial support. And I presume at some point or other, they may have to go back into the battle. So where's this money going to come from? The $50 billion that the EU just uh, released in spite of Hungary's efforts to sabotage it? The, unfortunately, it's not going to come from the United States, as we well know. The Republicans, uh, on Trump's orders, have basically killed the border deal, which would have given $60 billion to Ukraine. Yeah, it seems like a rather transitionary and murky moment in response to that question, Ian. However, um, there is still hope. Uh, First of all, the EU did approve the package, $56 billion. Um, I'm not certain the euro equivalent at the moment, but Ukraine had been promised that aid. It is not really military aid, but it does speak to covering pensions, covering salaries of doctors and teachers and um, 
probably also helping out the veterans. I'm not certain if the money is directly earmarked for that, but it is to maintain civil stability in the country. So one would assume with such a high priority being placed on the veterans that they will be getting some of this money. Certainly salaries of soldiers have been coming from foreign aid money. So indeed, the U.S. and the EU have been vital in keeping Ukraine's government really quite stable in the time of war. I don't think we should expect um, a highly functioning democratic government in the throes of warfare because there are a lot of pressures on them um, in in addition to the regular day-to-day governing obligations. However, um, the EU's $56 billion were approved and released today for Ukraine. Uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban has been doing all that he could to delay um, and only today under threat of some extreme sanctions, which were leaked to the media, um, perhaps purposefully, did Orban come to know that he was really at the last step before the EU was going to possibly take some measures against him and Hungary, suspending voting rights um, at the European Council and uh, possibly holding up billions of dollars that are earmarked for Hungary from the EU. So where will the other money come from? In the United States, the bill for further financial aid to Ukraine was a standalone bill last autumn, but the Republicans wanted to merge it with one of their top priorities um, as represented by their leadership, which was significant border reform in the United States, specifically at the southern border. A bipartisan committee was created shortly thereafter And they've been working on it up until and through um, February 4th, this last Sunday, when the draft bill was released to the Senate in the evening. And that draft bill went a long way. I'm not a border expert, but it went a long way in meeting some of the requests of the Republicans. And indeed, the bipartisan committee was quite pleased with the draft bill. Now, Ukraine was folded into this border deal, as was aid to Israel, and aid to Taiwan. So suddenly you have kind of a a cumbersome bill emerging, hitting very different aid packages, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, U.S. border reform. Um, And the border reform issue becomes highly politicized. First, the Republicans wanting to see it through as a top agenda. And then, as we heard in the last five to seven days, Republicans saying they're not going to support the bill um, and House Speaker Mike Johnson actually declared it dead on arrival before the draft was released, before it made it to the House. It's still not at the House. Um, He proclaimed it dead on arrival. He also said he might splinter off the Israeli aid bill and put it out separately for a vote. Um, So my suggestion would be If this albatross of border reform is being politicized um, by one party or another and it's hanging on the neck of Ukraine aid, separate Ukraine aid again, as it was in the beginning. Vote on it separately. There's still a majority of representatives supporting aid to Ukraine. The aid to Ukraine is central to U.S. national security interests and that of our NATO allies, and it's seems completely contradictory to U.S. national security interests to not move forward rapidly on approving the approximately $60 billion in security and economic aid for Ukraine. Well, the president said today in a White House address that now all indications are that this bill won't even make it to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason, Donald Trump, because Donald Trump thinks this is bad for him politically. He'd rather weaponize the issue rather than solve it. It looks like they're caving, meaning the Republicans. Frankly, they owe it to the American people to show some spine and do what they know is right. So it doesn't look particularly, and in fact, he also said that if Speaker Johnson, who takes orders from Trump, were to, as he said he would do, send a separate aid package for Israel, Biden would would veto it. So the long and the short of it is, if I was in Ukraine, I'd be pretty disappointed. 
I think Ukraine is on pins and needles watching this. They have had consistent reassurances from Antony Blinken and from President Biden that the U.S. will come through. And indeed, until the last week, it really did look like the Ukraine aid was uh, supported by more than a simple majority of members of both the House and the Senate. Um, What is going on right now is sheer politicking, sheer politicking, weaponizing the issue of aid to Ukraine, which, again, is an investment in European allied support, uh, security assistance, and uh, U.S. national security interests. It is being held hostage to our own detriment. They must find a way to supply the aid to Ukraine. This is a critical time in Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, Today marks the day 713 of the all-out invasion of Russia from February of 2022. Um, Of course, the the war began much earlier in 2014. Um, But this country has been at war for 10 years. And the human toll and the financial toll is vast. They've proven themselves not only to be enthusiastic defenders of their country and of their democracy in the face of, of a um, imperialistic, aggressive neighbor, much larger in size, um, much wealthier, relatively speaking. And they managed with the aid that they had received so far to diminish Russian military forces by 50%. Russia, a self-proclaimed enemy of the West and democracy and the U.S. specifically, um, we should really appreciate what Ukraine has done for the West and for Western democracies. But just now, in the last few weeks, they are running low on ammunition. They need air power. They need those F-16s. Um, if they don't receive those, they will no doubt be able to hold Russia back for a little bit longer. And just today, for example, they made some advances in Bucha, and the world probably knows what Ukrainian forces with very little, with no Navy, um, and with very little other necessary equipment, managed to uh, push Russia's Black Sea fleet away from Ukraine, something that wasn't even achieved from 1991 up until Uh, 2023. So that was quite an achievement. But the funds are desperately needed in Ukraine. And uh, you were quoting Biden a little bit earlier. He went on today and he said to support this draft law, which is right now somewhere in the halls of the Senate. This draft law is to rebuff Putin. Opposing it is to play into Putin's hands. The stake in the struggle go far beyond the borders of Ukraine. That is not stressed enough. Supporting Ukraine is in the U.S. national security interest and in Europe's interest. Why? Because we are all in a 31-member political military alliance called NATO. If one of our members is vulnerable or attacked, we will all respond, not necessarily immediately militarily, but we will all be on task. Um, I was recently in uh, the Baltics and um, and in Western Europe and in the Baltics. They are preparing their civilians um, to be more resilient to a potential invasion. Putin has made very clear that he has further visions beyond Ukraine. He has visions of the Baltics, of Poland, even of Germany and Alaska. So <laughs> this is not going to go away. To, right. And these are his own words and his leadership. The, right. To not stop Russia in Ukraine means to keep dealing with Russia for years to come as it encroaches further into Europe. And um, it's in keeping with Russian foreign policy. Andrei Gromyko, the former foreign minister of the Soviet Union and UN ambassador for Russia to uh, the United Nations, he took a very old philosophy of the Russian Tsar and through Lenin and Stalin traced it and modernized it to what we can still see playing out in modern day Russia's foreign and security policy. And to paraphrase just a tiny bit, because I don't remember the exact words, 
But um, the strategy for Russia is to push and push. And if nothing stops you, keep pushing. However, if you meet resistance, stop. And that is something that the West is just beginning to wrap its head around. If you do not stand up to an imperialist expansionist Russia, it will go on. There is absolutely no appeasing. It is a different world. The political culture is an autocratic one. It is not a democratic one. The people do not have a say, and the people cannot stop or reel in their leader even if some of them no doubt really want to. There are right. no mechanisms for that under Putin. So right, well, they, they've might... just shut down Boris Nedezin, who was allowed to run, but he became so popular with his petition that he now <laughs> threat to Putin. So, I mean, it's, and of course, right. Nedezin means hope as well in Russian. So just, but I, I want to get back in the last minute here, though, Natalie, to the shake-up at the top of the Ukrainian government. We already saw the former Defence Secretary, Reznikov, uh, get moved out. There have also been questions about Yermak, who's the head of the presidential office, about his loyalty and stuff. What's your expectation here in the last couple of minutes of of what heads might roll? Uh, well, I, I would definitely hate to predict that. Uh, but honestly, um, this is a cabinet that's been under extreme pressure and doing quite a good job maintaining stability in Ukraine. I mean, the folks I speak with in different parts of Ukraine that are not in direct fire, that are not along the front lines or are not occupied, um, a bit of the territory is currently occupied by Russia. Um, those people are, for the most part, trying to live a somewhat normal life. Pensions, remarkably, are being paid. Teachers and doctors are being paid. There is usually electricity and energy. Um, this is quite extraordinary for a country at war. That being said, um, it will also be natural that some opinions will change along the way. Some cabinet members might truly be exhausted. And the pool of experts to draw upon, quite frankly, are going to be not outsiders. They're going to be people from within anyway, whether they're coming from different ministries or maybe they're currently serving as deputies. Um, some are rumoring that, for example, if uh, Commander Zolushne is replaced, perhaps two of the most likely candidates are people who are already in the sphere, in the day-to-day -day operations, in the orbit. They know uh, what's going on. So these are not people who are green from the outside who have a steep learning curve, quite the contrary. So um, from the Ministry of Defense, the Military Intelligence Unit, who's currently the head, Kirillo Budanov, is being just bandied about as a name that you can pick up on, in different um, wires. And then um, Zaluzhny's deputy, Oleksandr Sirsky, is also being proposed as a replacement. Now, the interesting thing about this is if that U.S. aid does not come through for the military in Ukraine, then you're going to be fighting a really, really difficult war with very little light on the horizon. And so I don't know how many people are really going to want to take up that particular position. Well, Natalie Melnichuk, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Natalie Melnichik, who is a consultant on Euro-Atlantic security and a lecturer at Wayne State University, where she's writing a dissertation on hybrid warfare and Euro-Atlantic security. She has served as NATO representative to Ukraine, as head of the NATO Information and Documentation Center in Kiev, as a political officer in the Political Affairs and Security Policy Division at the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Section at NATO headquarters in Brussels, and as manager of the USAID's Parliamentary Development Project at the US-Ukraine Foundation and in various other academic and policy positions. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.